when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. $50 billion loss. Let me say that again. $50 billion loss. Can you even wrap your head around that number? In the headlines uh, this past week, it was reported that uh, Berkshire Hathaway recorded a record first quarter loss of $50 billion. And the CEO and chairman and one of the most competent investors of our time, uh, Warren Buffett, he reported to his shareholders at the annual meeting uh, and, and sharing that this world has changed because of the pandemic. And he went on to report, uh, as course correction, the company dumped $4 billion worth of all their airline stocks. Uh, we all know that the airlines have been decimated by the coronavirus. And he began to explain that the coronavirus has changed the way that business operates. And this was astounding. He admitted, he made a public admission, he used that word, that he admitted a mistake that he invested in that industry. Now, 
I bring this up because I want to ask to all of us today, uh, what are you investing in? In the most common way of understanding that, uh, you probably are thinking first financially. And so what are you investing in financially? But beyond finances and economy, what are you investing in in terms of life? Who are the people that you're investing in? What cause in life are you investing in? And not only this life, have you thought about investing for life after this life? I don't mean retirement. I mean, after you die, have you seriously thought about the realities of life after death? And do you believe that this life, the way we conduct ourselves here, the choices we make, the God that we choose to believe in, that it will shape and determine how your life investment pans out in eternity? Put it differently, do you have an investment that cannot crash? Sure, you may die while you are here on this earth. That's inevitable. That's just being human. But after death, will you be welcome to a joyous eternity where you realize that the investments of your life, they don't crash. In fact, they have the most joyous dividends for the rest of eternity. Now, again, to put it differently yet again, could you be wrong about your ultimate investment? Now, according to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is the ultimate investment. Jesus came to this earth to declare that there is another life to come. And in this life, you can either be a part of the final ultimate kingdom of God, of Jesus Christ, or you can be under God's wrath forever. And according to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is the ultimate investment that we can make with our lives while we're here on this earth. And so today's scripture, uh, as a summary of it, I, I hope uh, by the end of the sermon that there'll be something stirring in your heart that you'll want to pray to God, that you'll want to talk to him in a way similar to this prayer here. Lord, help me to help others understand your coming kingdom. Put differently, help me, God, to live to invest into your kingdom, into Christ's kingdom and for eternity. And a concrete expression of that is to use our lives to help others understand this coming kingdom. And so I want to ask for uh, the rest of the sermon, what can I do? What can you do? What can I do to help others understand Christ's coming kingdom? And I want to unpack uh, four ways that we can help others understand uh, Christ's coming kingdom. And so let's dive into it. First, be an answer to Jesus' prayer. What do I mean by that, and where do we see that? Well, let's get into the text. Chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Now, why you notice that Jesus went through all the cities and villages? In the best sense, in the most purest sense, uh, Jesus was a politician. Now, he didn't come to be uh, a prime minister or president or emperor of this earth. But certainly he came with the most purest heart, with the purest motive uh, to 
campaign and tell humanity that there is a kingdom, there is a government to come after this life. And so in very concrete, practical ways, we see Jesus campaigning, so to speak, just like any other politician would. He is going throughout all the cities and villages, and he is trying to share this news of his government, his good government, and and sharing promises of his kingdom to come. Now, certainly, I hope you and I can appreciate this. When I, I certainly do. When, I, when election time rolls around and I see all the leaders working tirelessly, relentlessly, getting on their campaign gray coach buses, traveling from town to town, from small town to urban, um, you know, just meccas, and, and they are tirelessly engaging people, hearing complaints, making campaign promises, and speaking and talking, and and I see all their energy, I can appreciate all the more how Jesus with, from the purest heart, you know, these other politicians, sure, we, we see their weak sides as well, that they have ulterior motives, that maybe they're just in politics for their own fame, or for power, or or whatnot, but Jesus Christ tirelessly spreading this news from the most purest motive and purest heart. Jesus is campaigning for another government and kingdom, but the difference is that Christ is proclaiming an eternal kingdom after this life. Now, that's Jesus' missional energy. I I want you to see his missional passion and his drive there, but we also see his motive. As we continue in verse 36, when he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them. The word that's translated as compassion literally means from the bowels, that there was something in Jesus' gut when he looked out on all humanity, on the people. There was something genuine in his heart that broke for the people that he saw. There was a genuine care and love for the people that he saw. And when he looked at them, he saw that they were harassed and helpless. Now, you and I, we might not necessarily use those words to describe ourselves. Perhaps some of us do feel harassed or helpless. But I don't want us to um, think that we are immune from this description. And those words just literally mean, harassed means troubled. Someone who's just simply troubled in their heart. And even going through this pandemic, I'll be the first one to raise my hand and say, I've had troubled moments, anxious moments. And certainly, I could fit this description of uh, the kind of people that Jesus was seeing. And this word helpless just literally means thrown down. Someone who is perhaps at times feeling a little beat up from life. Have you ever not had a day at the end of the day where you just feel tired and beat up from whatever you've experienced that day? And so I want you, what I want you to catch here is that Jesus, he has a heart to care for you. He has seen you in your darkest moments. He has seen you uh, with just shedding those secret tears that no one else sees. He's seen you uh, and just he knows the burden that you carry. And I hope that you would find yourself touched that Christ would want to see you in a similar way that he saw the crowds here with compassion. Moving on in the text in verse 37, he sees these crowds and now we see Jesus' prayer. Then he said to his disciples, and he's burdened for all these people, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Jesus is using a metaphor here that people here are like a fruit to be 
not just harvested and wanting to see them live a full life. And he is broken for them, but he realizes this is a beautiful mystery of Jesus. He was perfectly God, yes, divine, but also perfectly human. And so Jesus knew that he was limited. He was only one human body, and he could only be in one place at one time. And he says, as he saw that the need uh, outweighed his single human body and where he could be at one time and all the work that he could do, he prayed and he taught his followers to pray, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more people to tell of this good news of the coming kingdom and of God's caring heart for those who feel troubled or who feel thrown down in life. And I want you to notice what happens next. Jesus teaches his followers to pray this way. And look who becomes the answer to Jesus' prayer. Moving to chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples. These were the original 12. There were other followers that followed Jesus and considered themselves disciples of Jesus. But these were the original 12, Jesus' inner circle, if you will. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Who became the answer to Jesus' prayer? His disciples. Now, I want you to pause here and just to consider that you as well could have this privileged purpose in life to become an answer to the Lord's prayer. To, to be a continuation and expression of Christ's compassion for the world. What a precious, beautiful, and privileged use of your life. So how are we going to help others understand God's kingdom come? And, and that is coming after this life. First, consider being an answer to Jesus' own prayer. But next, we need to embrace this imperative to go and proclaim and explain the gospel. Because what Jesus does is, is to delegate to his disciples to go out and keep proclaiming this message and to explain it, just as he was going through every town and village and explaining it and, and, and proclaiming it. We are to do the same, just as he delegated to his disciples. Now, let's clarify. Uh, what do we mean by the gospel? We throw that word around a lot. It is a very important word uh, for us here at Trinity Grace Church and for any genuine Christ follower. And so what do we mean by the gospel? My favorite 15-second version summary of the gospel, the gospel is basically Jesus Christ's message that we are to place faith in and this message that can save us from our sin, sins and, and, and heal us. And so my favorite 15-second summary of that is John chapter 3, verse 16, but with a little garnish. I'm, I'm just going to uh, quote John chapter 3, 16, 15 seconds, but with a tiny little garnish. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, Jesus, as the substitute for our sins, that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. There it is. That took about 15 seconds. And even if you only have 15 seconds to share the gospel with someone that you'll only meet once in your life, you can share that message. You can explain the gospel and proclaim it that way. Now, taking a step back, 
we, we need to understand. i got to set you up with a certain understanding before we get to the next verse. And another way to understand proclaiming and explaining the gospel is that uh, God has been in the business in history since the beginning of time, since Adam and Eve, uh, to this very present day, that God has been executing his gospel mission, his gospel project, if you will. And I believe, as we look at Scripture, there are basically four stages or four strategic uh, phases that God has been proclaiming his gospel my favorite analogy, and I've shared it before at Trinity Grace Church, is, is just the, the image of uh, a championship game and there's a penalty shootout at the end to determine the championship winner. And if you think of Jesus' team uh, having four players, God's team having four players, and the first player to go up and try to uh, proclaim this gospel in the way that God intended were Adam and Eve. Okay, I know there are two people, but just consider them one player. But we know they missed. They missed the goal. But even through Adam and Eve, even as they sinned and they were uh, banished from the Garden of Eden, God proclaimed and explained the gospel that through Eve's descendants that Satan's head would be crushed, the serpent's head would be crushed, and even as they were banished from the garden, God himself provided the first animal sacrifice and provided coverings for Adam and Eve as they were leaving the garden to cover their nakedness and shame. And that was a foreshadow of the gospel. The second player to go up and attempt a goal in this penalty kick shootout was Israel, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, and his 12 sons, and who would collectively, uh, their descendants would become the nation Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel. And they collectively were the second teammate, if you will, the second uh, just son-like figure to God. And they were to proclaim to the world and demonstrate how God chose them, not because of their own merit, not because of anything they have done or how special they were, but God loved them and chose them, and they were meant to demonstrate a, a grateful obedience to God's law. But they failed in that as well, and they broke a covenant with God, and they failed. And so now we come to Jesus Christ, and he's the third player, if you will. He is God's true son. He is the true Israel. He is the final Adam. And we know Jesus, he successfully scores. He proclaims the gospel. In fact, we can say uh, just truly that Jesus is the gospel. He embodies God's gospel message that he wants to show grace to all those who would uh, place faith in Jesus and have their sins forgive them and welcome them to this coming kingdom after this life. Now, who's the fourth player then? The fourth player is the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus's body. And now Jesus is looking to the church, all those through uh, since Christ came and uh, across the world, genuine followers of Christ to proclaim and explain that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him as a substitute for our sins will not perish but have eternal life. Now, I set all that up because look at verse 2. As Jesus uh, sorry, as Matthew continues to explain the scene of Jesus now delegating to his disciples, all of a sudden we see a switch in their label, in what they're called. 
Remember, Jesus called to him 12 disciples, and now in verse 2, all of a sudden, without any warning, Matthew now addresses them as apostles. The names of the 12 apostles, and he goes on to name all the 12 apostles, and these are the same uh, 12 men who were Jesus' 12 disciples. And so what you need to understand here is that Jesus was appointing these 12 men to become the foundation, the, 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 the startup uh, team of the church. Paul, the apostle, who became an apostle later on uh, after Jesus ascended, he explains it best in his letter to Christ followers in Ephesus. And so looking to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, just picking up in verse 17, I'll just read his explanation. And he, meaning Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off, meaning anyone who wasn't Jewish, the multicultural world, and peace to those who were near, meaning uh, Israel. For through him we both, and Paul is saying both because he's speaking of the Jewish nation and anyone else who is uh, not Jewish, the multicultural Gentile world. For through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And that household there is the church. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Now, this is the part that I want you to notice. Verse 20. This church, this household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You see, God's designated role for the apostles, these 12 apostles that Jesus had appointed, uh, were to be the foundation, the startup team of the church of Jesus Christ, and of which Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And so again, jumping back to verse 7, Jesus says, Proclaim as you go, wherever you're going, the kingdom is at hand. One way to summarize Christ's mission and Christ, the Christ followers' continuation of Christ's mission is that you and I are meant to alert anyone and everyone we can of this kingdom that is coming. To explain and proclaim to people that there is a life after this life. There's something to invest in beyond this life. And the way to the good eternal life is through Jesus Christ alone. But there is supposed to be also a specific tone and, and tenor, or color, if you will, to how we proclaim and explain this gospel. Remember, the big question that we're asking is, you know, what can I do to help others understand this coming kingdom of Jesus Christ? And we are, as Christ followers, also meant to heal with the gospel. Our proclaiming and explaining uh, is meant to have a tone and just tenor of healing with the gospel. Where do we see this? Now, as Jesus instructs, therefore go and proclaim wherever you're going this, uh, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then part and parcel, uh, right on the tail of verse 7, Jesus explains, heal. He gave authority to these apostles. He gave special, miraculous power, just as Jesus had, to heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse lepers and cast out demons. And this word heal, in the Greek, it's uh, the word therapuo. 
Does that sound familiar? It sounds a lot like our English word therapy, doesn't it? And so at the root of healing, and, or really just at the root of all our longing in our modern-day culture of therapy, I mean, there are so many types of therapy, all different types of therapy, music therapy, art therapy, walks at sunrise and sunset therapy, psychotherapy, cognitive uh, behavioral therapy, massage therapy, water therapy, aromatherapy, uh, you know, uh, physiotherapy, and attachment theor- uh, theory theory attachment theory therapy, and on and on and on. And what I'm trying to get at is it's so obvious that in our culture, in our, as humans, what we long for is this wholeness, is this healing. And Jesus ultimately provides that, be it temporarily now, some of us might experience some miraculous healing in our lives as we come to Christ. Or We have to remember, even if you're temporarily healed, everyone that Jesus healed, eventually they faced the greatest sickness and disease, which is death. And so it's just a temporary healing. Or we will all, for all of us who place faith in Christ, we will all experience a permanent and complete whole healing. Now the point is this. Our proclaiming and explaining is meant to have this tone of healing. So even as Jesus says, proclaim and explain that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Healing is a huge part of this kingdom to come. We experience God first healing our hearts, and we're restored in relationship with him. And then as our hearts are healed, as we are more and more made whole, that overflows to our relationships, our human relationships. And we experience more and more healing in our friendships and family relationships and with co-workers and on and on. Let me summarize it this way. Everything we are and do as Christ's church should endeavor to be a signpost of the kingdom we believe to come. As we seek to help others understand this coming kingdom, we're meant to have a healing quality to how we proclaim and explain the gospel. Everything we do as Christ church should endeavor to be a signpost of the wholeness that will come with Christ's kingdom. Now, it's helpful then to ask what powers, what powers the church's healing ministry? And so Jesus, he gives us an answer to that as we continue in verse 8. As he explains, I want you to go and heal Uh, and proclaim and explain, and then he has this caveat. He has this qualification. You received without paying. Therefore, give without pay. That is a beautiful summary and paraphrase of grace. Jesus is saying to his disciples and now apostles and to all his followers who would listen and even Christ's followers today in 2020, if we have really experienced Jesus for who he is, then we have experienced his grace. We have received the loving kindness of God and his goodness in our lives, not because of anything we have done, but simply because of the Father's grace through Jesus Christ. And because we have received by grace without paying You and I, a true testament to that grace transforming us and saturating us is that it overflows and we want to give without expecting anything back. And so Jesus purposefully 
requires his apostles and his followers as they go and seek to proclaim and explain the gospel, they are meant to do so without this attitude, well, first, I have to have my own human security. I have to have enough in the bank account so that I won't run dry of resources or funds or whatnot as I go about and live for Christ. No, Jesus says, I want you to just trust grace. And so to these apostles, he gives these specific instructions. I want you to just go out there and trust that God will provide. And so that's why he gives these specific instructions. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. But then notice this. For the laborer deserves his food. Look, Jesus is not saying, I'm going to test you by seeing how long you can survive by being left out uh, high and dry. Jesus is not being cruel. He's saying, you will be provided for. As you go and do the work of the kingdom, you will be provided for. You you, you deserve your food and you'll be cared for uh, by God ultimately. But Jesus' point is trust that God's grace is meant to overflow just as you've received, now overflow this grace. And you'll be able to keep giving because God, who is infinitely resourced, will keep giving to you. So this whole point of healing, uh, that we are to heal with the gospel. Uh, I like this sort of summary thought. You see, truth, truth is excellent for diagnosis. Truth diagnosis. When you have truth, when you have principles and, and you can judge a situation, you can judge people, but it's grace that ultimately heals. Jesus wants his apostles and his followers to be proclaiming and explaining his coming kingdom with uh, just, a, uh, just an overwhelming tone of grace and this grace that heals. Practically speaking, let, just give me permission to dream a little bit for Trinity Grace Church. Practically speaking, what I hope for Trinity Grace is that we make ourselves available for God to use us to heal in whatever way he so pleases to use us. Perhaps God will actually unleash some miracles of healing in our midst. And if he does, praise God. And I hope we never become a sensational uh, gathering who are looking to miracles just for some sort of sensational experience while here on this earth or just wanting to make our lives more comfortable here on this earth. But if we experience miraculous healing in our midst, that we praise God for it as a signpost and preview of Christ's coming kingdom beyond this life. Perhaps God will use a solid counseling ministry to heal others in the way we think and the way we feel, the way we process our past and our hurts. Perhaps God will socially and emotionally heal people through our new community gatherings and through the fellowship and and the study of Christ and going deeper into his grace that happens there. Perhaps God will provide materially through our resources to one another. Perhaps God's uh, choice of means aside, perhaps we'll experience just whatever form uh, of healing, but may his spirit use Trinity Grace Church to heal as a signpost of Christ's kingdom to come. But finally, never stop sharing the gospel. Never stop seeking to proclaim and explain the gospel to 
whomever you can and, and seeking to have that tenor and tone of healing with God's grace. Never stop sharing this gospel. Where do we see this? As we continue in verse 11, Jesus now explains to his disciples something they should expect. And he says, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy. Now that's an interesting word. And we're not meant to, please don't misinterpret that. He is not saying if someone is good enough, if someone is moral enough. Now, to help us understand what Jesus means here by finding someone who is worthy, uh, the word in Greek there is axios, or, or um, uh, yeah, axios. And what I want you to notice is that this is the exact same word that Jesus uses back in uh, verse chapter 10, verse 9, when he says, first remember, he's explaining grace, you received without paying. Give without pay. Jesus, that's his paraphrase for grace. And then he goes on later to say, for the laborer deserves his food. That word deserve there is the exact same word as worthy. And so this worthiness is all in the context of grace. It's a continual overflow of grace. And so how we are to understand when Jesus says, look for those who are worthy, you and I, as we share, seek to share the gospel, we're meant to have attentive eyes. We're meant to have prayerful, prayerful hearts that can recognize God's grace at work in people's lives. A spiritual curiosity, a, a hunger in someone's life, someone looking for meaning, someone who actually has questions about Jesus Christ. Or perhaps we see someone with a, a very kind heart and wanting to do good, and we just need to provide that last bridging step to the God uh, whose Son is Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate just show of that kindness, and to have that kindness, their kindness in their life, redeemed by Jesus' ultimate act of kindness. To put it differently, the Christ follower's powerful motivation to never stop sharing is the belief that God's grace is always working until Jesus returns. We're meant to have that, that redemptive, hopeful, just default belief that God's grace is working somewhere in my midst, and I need to just recognize it. It's what the reformers called effectual grace, that God's grace that the Holy Spirit is working in man's hearts and always wooing and calling people to himself. There's a grace that's trying to have an effect in their lives to, to regenerate them, to help their hearts to be inclined towards Christ. And so that's why Jesus says in verse 12, painting a realistic picture of what to expect, he says, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, if you recognize that God's grace is working there, let your peace come upon it. But if you realize, know that they're rejecting God's grace. That's what Jesus means by if they're not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, meaning the gospel of Jesus Christ, meaning they're resisting God's grace, then Jesus says very black and white, then keep moving forward. Keep moving on. He even uses a bit of a drastic custom to shake the dust off the feet. And to, but Jesus' point is keep moving forward. Have hope. God's grace is working everywhere. And our 
attitude needs to be, God, I want to keep hoping that your grace is calling people to yourself. I love how R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul, puts it. The history of the human race, however, is the history of relentless resistance to the sweetness of the grace of God. There will be those who resist Jesus' invitation to place faith in his gospel of grace. The Holy Spirit does not drag people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. When people come to Christ, they run to Christ. When people experience the grace of Christ and seeing Jesus having left, he is the original apostle sent by the Father and having come here with nothing, being born in humble abode, Jesus is the original. When we see Jesus doing that for us and having compassion for us, then we run to him. We run to him. And we embrace him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts to be inclined toward him. So keep moving forward. Never stop sharing. And so I hope you'll want to pray with me. Lord, help me to help others understand your coming kingdom.